content warning. We believe it's important to fully cover the lived experiences of people with disabilities. We will regularly be discussing topics that may be difficult for some listeners. Please take care of yourself. Hello, and welcome to Looking the Other Way, the everything disability podcast where we discuss the humanity of disability in a way that is relatable and accessible. We'll be diving into hard topics that are often left out of mainstream conversations. Join us as we flip the script on what it means to be disabled and start looking the other way. Welcome to another episode of Looking the Other Way. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Erin. I'm Em. And I'm Mattia. And today we are going to uh, dive in a little bit on the topic of anxiety. Uh, We do intend to do uh, future episodes about this as well, Uh, but this will be our first episode talking about anxiety. And looking kind of uh, the broader spectrum of anxiety, uh, diving into the history of it should be pretty fun. We found a lot of really um, interesting information, (laughs) new to us too. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think it's probably good to mention again, we're not experts. We're not uh, uh, professionals like therapists necessarily. And so we're doing our best. (laughs) So (laughs) if, uh, if there's anything we say that's a little silly or you've got comments about it, please let us know. Uh, but yes, let's go ahead and dive in. So let's start with what even is anxiety? Like we hear that term a lot, um, people feeling anxious, or I think it's thrown out a lot like, oh, like I have anxiety and like, I'm feeling anxious about this and that. But at the core, what actually is it? Mm. So the actual definition from the diagnostic manual is it's excessive anxiety and worry that occurs more days than not and for at least six months about a number of different things. So that could be like about like schoolwork, um, work, work, (laughs) relationships, chores, all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, It's also that the individual finds it difficult to control that worry. So it feels kind of out of control for you. It's just it's kind of happening all the time maybe or like about specific like social settings. Maybe there's different kinds of anxiety, right? Like Mm -hmm. social anxiety generalized um it's also that the anxiety and worry is associated with three or more of these symptoms uh like feeling restless um being easily fatigued having a hard time concentrating being really irritable uh having muscle tension sleep disturbances and so it's not that someone with anxiety has all of these things but Mm -hmm. they're just potential symptoms that sometimes people do have Mm Um, the anxiety, worry, or physical symptoms cause clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. So, yes, to some level, everyone worries about things. Mm-hmm. There are situations where it makes total sense to be worried about certain things, like yeah. really terrible things happening in the world. That's not necessarily going to mean that somebody has a clinical diagnosis of yeah. anxiety. That is a human thing yes. to worry. Worry, <laughs> yes. worry exists. Anxiety, <laughs> anxious feelings exist for everyone. Mm-hmm. It doesn't become clinically significant until you start kind of hitting all these other markers that we're mentioning, which mm-hmm. we'll talk a little bit more about that, of course. Mm. 
Um, it's also um, that the disturbance is not attributed to the physiological effects of a substance. So this is important. Um, it wouldn't be that it's um, the, the anxious feelings or worry is caused because somebody is doing drugs. Mm-hmm. Or drinking um, caffeine. Actually, yeah, that's a much really more, good example, yeah. too. It's a really common or one. prescribed medications, too. <laughs> yes, yes, of course. Yeah. Um, and then the disturbance is not better explained by another medical disorder. So this is sometimes with diagnosing where things can get a little bit complicated because a lot of things that you can be diagnosed with can look like a lot of other things you can be diagnosed mm-hmm. with. And so sometimes maybe it's not that you have anxiety. It could be that some of the symptoms are like similar, but it is actually more better explained that you've got depression or something else. Mm-hmm. So maybe do we want to all share just a few examples for us personally of what that can look like? Because we've all, Mattia and I, you're diagnosed with anxiety. I actually haven't been formally diagnosed. I I was taking citalopram, which um, is commonly uh, given to people who both have depression and have anxiety. Um, But I was taking it for depression Mm. um, and noticed that my my social anxiety definitely went down. Yes, Mm. okay. Um, And so, yeah, no formal diagnosis, but I I, I do want to talk to my doctor about it. I am formally diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. G-A-D, GAD. Um, <laughs> but um, oh I do know. Oh, oh, my God. Oh, my God. E-Gads. E- 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 E-Gads. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel generally all the time. <laughs> oh, E-Gads. <laughs> um, I, I know that we have, like, between mm-hmm. the three of us have taken some, like, um, different tests and stuff that, mm-hmm. like, typically, like, a therapist might have you take. And, like, we've done them at home and, like, yeah. all have had some pretty significant scores. So even without having formal diagnosis like yeah I think there's some reason to believe that we all experience this (laughs) yeah and same for me I don't have a formal diagnosis but again with my therapist we have kind of come to a informal (laughs) diagnosis Mm -hmm. yes and so uh social anxiety you were mentioning Mattia what what does that look like or feel like for you um, yeah, so <laughs> presenting um, is really hard. So if I know that, for example, I'm going to do the intro for this podcast, <laughs> then I have to like really kind of like have a mental battle with myself almost like I'm like working myself up I'm like okay these are the things that I'm gonna have to do and these are the potential things that could go wrong and like how if I if I do mess up like what do I have to do to like remedy the situation and it's just like a bunch of what ifs a bunch of like it might you know my heart rate increases I'm like sometimes like my breathing will like get kind of shallow yeah. um so it's, yeah a lot of the the things you're mentioning um before having difficulty concentrating and going blank happens a lot so if i'm presenting uh sometimes it'll just be like my mind will just go blank and I, I won't remember how it went and i'm like how did i sound because i have no idea like i officiated your wedding m yes and i don't remember <laughs> any of it the only thing i do remember is when i messed up and forgot to say um uh the like you guys can like walk down the aisle part oh, well, yes. what, what was that even i don't even remember the i remember that but it happened i remember but, everyone because there laughed was a moment of silence that wasn't we didn't ask for it <laughs> Right. It was just it so re- well. Yeah, and everyone laughed, and it was like very lighthearted, and it was perfectly fine. But like that's the part I remember is because my anxiety like clung to that, and not mm-hmm. the other things that went right. Like, mm-hmm. yes. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what about you, Aaron? Yeah. Um. <clears throat> so I think for me, how it tends to show up is, um, historically, I have very much wanted to have my environment controlled to a T. So. 
again, I've come a long way with this in um, recent years, but I know, uh, for example, uh, when uh, we first moved out with some roommates when I was uh, still 17, 18, I think right 18, around there, yeah, 18, 18 or so, um, I remember uh, <laughs> commenting um, to one of my new roommates that uh, she was folding towels incorrectly because <laughs> there is a way that you're supposed <laughs> to fold them. And of course, that did not go well, <laughs> as I'm mm-hmm. sure a lot of you can imagine. And, um, <laughs> you know, and uh, so I, I kind of got to a point where I was able to kind of set aside things that were in communal spaces to a certain extent, not entirely, but my own spaces, like my bedroom or my bathroom, um, even though that was a shared space too, uh, you know, I would have very controlled and make sure, you know, everything always had a place and it went back in that place. So I would always know where everything was and, um, you know, just decrease the chances of having some sort of uncertainty in the environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so, and this is where I think anxiety can start looking a little bit confusing for people who do have it or, and, and, or for those who don't, it looks very different for absolutely everyone. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard. I think like maybe if you've got um, social anxiety, you could look at somebody like for me, I don't have any issues. I don't think I have anything social anxiety going on. Mm -hmm. Um, My generalized anxiety will like creep in just generally everywhere all the time. And so I'm going to have moments. It's not that I don't feel completely uncomfortable, like in front of a large crowd, but I'm very like, if, if there's no one else that's able to do that and they need me to like run out in front of the crowd and like announce something, I can do that without having to think about it. So I don't Mm -hmm. have social anxiety. But somebody who does have social anxiety, if I say that I experience anxiety and they see me like up on stage, they could very Mm. easily be like, no, you don't. Right. (laughs) I could never. (laughs) And so there's, yeah, there's these kind of different branches. So there's um, subsets of anxiety. um, And I don't know if everyone knows that these are related, but OCD is a Mm -hmm. type of anxiety. Mm -hmm. I'm not diagnosed with OCD, but I think there are like tendencies that kind of go into that. And so like what you're talking about with Mm -hmm. having to be like very organized, I relate to that quite a lot. (laughs) OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder thank you thank yes you. yes obsessive compulsive <laughs> disorder um and so it, yes. well and i was gonna say i mm-hmm. think that you're absolutely right that i think that um again it's informal but in talking with my therapist i think that my um you know anxiety type is a lot more in the ocd realm than like social or generalized anxiety for sure Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think people, yeah, generally speaking, like anxiety stems from lack of control a little bit. And mm-hmm. so it makes sense to want to be able to control your your environment um, because then it kind of it, it supposedly mitigates the anxiety. But it really, you know, it just <laughs> makes it more anxious. almost. Yeah. Right. Because then and- when things go wrong, then it's like really anxiety inducing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, and so we've got so obsessive compulsive disorder, um, social anxiety disorder, and the other subsets of anxiety, there's also panic disorder, mm-hmm. which um, can sometimes be related to like uh, several panic attacks. It doesn't always necessarily look like that. Um, there's post-traumatic stress disorder, which mm-hmm. is a subset that I experience. And then there's yeah. also specific phobia, which is also a subset that I experience. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, uh if anyone has heard of the term um i don't know if we've mentioned it on an earlier podcast but comorbidities um it's often the case that um somebody experiencing like if i've got anxiety the chances that like i've just i'm like doing great all i've got is anxiety not super likely (laughs) um comorbidity meaning like you've got several different things that are all kind of like interconnected and related to each other and so the more the more 
things that you have comorbidities the more likely it is that you're going to have other things crop up yeah Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) which is not maybe the happiest thing to hear (laughs) i wasn't um happy to learn that myself but um i guess so for me um with having uh there's a couple different ways that my anxiety can present so i think the generalized anxiety um uh, the most common thing that probably anyone who's got generalized can relate to is just like the thoughts that just come up constantly Mm. I just have thoughts in my head that pop up all the time that are like, this person is upset with you or like, I'll be trying to sleep at night and like this thing that like terrible thing that happened like seven years ago will come up and I will not sleep like the almost the entire night. And I get like really fixated on the thing, whatever it is. And I can't let go of it. And it's, it's, I always, I think of it as having like two different versions of myself. There's like logical me that knows that this makes absolutely no sense and it's like really ridiculous to be spending all of my mental energy on it and then there's the anxiety version of me that has no control over that and I can't do anything about it I just have to spend all this time worrying about something completely pointless Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's not a lot of fun um well I will say um I know we have covered this in um a recent episode but um in terms of kind of the PTSD link here I feel like that is partially where there might be somewhat of a difference is that for me, um, my kind of uh, controlling tendencies or OCD tendencies um, show up when certain events are going on in the world. So mm-hmm. I know, um, I'm sure a lot of you know this, that there was a school shooting recently and a lot of my kind of controlling tendencies have gotten worse or even kind of come back up mm-hmm. that were not really going on before that. Right. And I think, Again, not being um, a clinic, a clinician who knows formally, but I, I mm-hmm. might, it seems to me that like your anxiety stems from PTSD. Mm-hmm. I, I had been diagnosed with anxiety before PTSD and I think my PTSD just like exacerbates the whole thing, like mm-hmm. makes it yeah. so much worse. And so it could kind of, I don't, I don't know how to like explain that in a formal medical <laughs> kind of way. Because mm-hmm. you both have the same comorbidities, but what came first, the chicken or the egg? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the anxiety chicken or the PTSD egg? Oh yeah, I was diagnosed <laughs> with an egg first. <laughs> Aaron has the I chicken. So yeah, so anxiety can look very different for absolutely everyone. Um, there's very uh, different kinds of anxieties um, and just because one person experiences it in one part of their life and another person experiences it in a very different way doesn't mean that there aren't similarities to be found in them um, from every like all the conversations that the three of us have had in the past we experience anxiety very differently but mm-hmm. I see a lot more that we've got in common about it <laughs> than what we don't yeah <laughs> Um, so shall we dive into some history and kind of where this all (laughs) stems from? It's a, it's a a fantastic uh, story. Yes. It's quite the journey we're going to take you on here. So, um, so, uh, to start with, uh, we want to go over some of the names that anxiety has had throughout history. Um, they're just great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, uh, first, uh, we found um, irritable heart syndrome. Which certainly is how it feels sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> My irritable heart. Um, we also have a nerve weakness. <laughs> um, and then we have a pan, panophobia or pantophobia. Um, pan meaning all, so fear of everything. So you might recognize pan from Pangea for all of the continents. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, 
so that's that's our names <laughs> that we're working that with. Got, just a couple we found. A couple in we found. Yeah. Um, so we're there gonna go. <laughs> we're gonna go through uh, kind of some history, like we said, starting from ancient times. And um, as we go along, we will also talk about some of the cures that people <laughs> tried to use. Cures in quotation marks. Cures in quotation marks. <laughs> so. Okay. Yeah. So um, just to kind of touch on the history, um, in about 1550 BCE, um, we saw in um, the most like ancient text, uh, the Ebers Papyrus, I think. Ebers, Ebers Papyrus. E- yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was uh, some mentioning of anxiety-like symptoms. Um, so that's kind of the oldest we were able to locate when we were doing our research of like some anxiety loosely uh, um, symptoms. Yeah, just kind of like the yeah. where it stems from the earliest findings in writing, in writing. that we could find. Yeah, yeah. And um, so George Ebers uh, purchased this in 1873. This this uh, like document, document, I guess. Yeah, yeah and published <laughs> it in 1889. Um, so then from there we do see other um, a lot of other medical texts and other places mentioned that was the first from there yeah yeah Yeah, so um one thing that just uh, stood out to me with this so the ebers papyrus um i believe uh was was it from ancient egypt i actually don't remember i think i I think it was but so it's named after the european um white guy who discovered it quote unquote (laughs) um who found it later and um so I just, it brings up an interesting point here that um, a lot of how this history shows up is very colored by misogyny and racism mm-hmm. throughout history. So um, something it, to keep in mind. And it starts off right from the get-go. Starts right from the beginning. <laughs> Surprise. Um, so um, so uh, in terms of some cures that we found from around that same era, 1500 BCE, uh, so uh, women, and we're going to talk about women a lot here throughout this history, since um, anxiety and things like anxiety were seen as something that only happened to women at the time, uh, which we now absolutely know is not true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, can speak for myself here. Um, <laughs> but women um, would uh, experience seizure-like symptoms, uh, a sense of suffocation and impending doom. So the cure that they had at the time was, uh, so they believed that women's <laughs> reproductive organs were in the wrong place in their body. So uh, <laughs> they would try to uh, lure them back to the correct place by either using perfume or dung uh, at various points. Um, so they would either hold those things near the uh, woman's mouth and face or um, near her uh, private genital, organs, yes. her genital area. Um, you know, to try to again lure her her womb basically to where it was supposed to be, and they like thought that this, that like, would mystical fix tug, tug of war. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> apparently smell organs. can move organs. Yeah. So. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, hysteria back in 400 BCE um, used to be uh, described as hysteric or hustera, um, which means womb or hysterics, which means of the womb. I think mm-hmm. I said that correctly. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think so. Hysterics. Yes, we, we wrote out the <laughs> phonetic phonetic yeah. spelling. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's a hard one. we don't it speak is. Greek. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, for women only from 400 BCE all the way up to when uh, Sigmund Freud mm-hmm. uh, came about, uh, he was the first to mention that men could also experience this. So for a very long time, it was just a, a women's uh, diagnosis yeah so yes and it might be good to mention too hysteria um another like 
way that people may have heard the term more modernly is like to be hysterical. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. And so it, when they say women experienced hysteria or h- hysterics or however it's pronounced, um, what they're really saying is that anytime a woman was just like um, acting frantic or overwhelmed or, you know, for all mm-hmm. of the cool. reasons that it could have been at the time, like yeah. all the terrible things that they used to do to women. Yeah not like any let's like let's not talk about any of that it's clearly that they're hysterical yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's what's wrong well and you even you'll hear this even to this day sometimes mm-hmm. we'll, people will say that in correlation to women's like menstrual cycles mm-hmm. they'll still refer to this i actually yeah. was pretty upset about this because i had gone through i had learned a little bit about the history of this when i had been in mm-hmm. school and um not all that long ago i guess it would have been like maybe a year ago i had gone to see a doctor for my genetic condition that i was having and at the time we didn't know what it was still we didn't know it was genetic i just i just knew that i was experiencing this shaking these like movements on in my arm and my leg and i had i had a neurologist tell me that it could just be like anxiety and maybe i'm just like kind of overwhelmed right now and in that moment i i didn't say anything in the meeting but or in the appointment but was just like you're saying i have hysteria like (laughs) you're you're saying that it's like all in my head and like Mm -hmm. you typically don't experience like movements like that with anxiety not to say it couldn't happen but i was just like oh i hate this (laughs) i promise this is not what's happening right to get to a specialist just for them to shut you down like that you had to be referred to get that far i did i had to be referred to that so that took multiple steps to get there and that cost me five hundred dollars yeah yeah that's our medical system right there and i will say too i can imagine that a man would be much less likely to be told that <laughs> than a woman. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had that thought too. I just wonder, yeah. and it was a male doctor. I just, I wonder. Yeah. I wonder if that would have looked differently if it was a female doctor and if I had, or if I had been a male patient. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say too, I think this brings up a good point as well that um, I feel like we're far enough beyond a lot of this history that people don't know the connection as well. But if you are using the word hysterical, it's good to know that there's this huge history behind that word that has a lot of meaning to it that even if you don't consciously know it, it's still in our culture. It's like it is a dig against women. Yeah. 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 So um, just to kind of wrap up though, like hysteria, basically, um, you know, because men can experience what was known as hysteria, but is now known as anxiety. <laughs> like, obviously, it wasn't related to the womb or the uterus. So we kind of figured that out eventually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it starts getting us <clears throat> more on the right track, you'd think. <laughs> uh, so Hippocrates, um, so again, we're still in ancient times here, uh, was the first person to use the term hysteria. And um, he believed the disease was caused by movement of the uterus in the body. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, He was the first. uh, He described it as being a distinct separate thing from epilepsy because it had been kind of combined in with that before. And um, so he believed that the cause was poisonous, stagnant humors. And um, humors are a whole thing (laughs) in terms of medical things getting it wrong. (laughs) There's a whole thing there we could go into, but... Um, if you don't know what humors are, I highly recommend you look it up. It is humorous. Awesome. <laughs> it, it is not humorous. It's really. not. <laughs> um, but he believed that so these um, poisonous stagnant humors uh, were not being expelled from the body because the woman had an inadequate sex life. So mm-hmm. he um, asserted that women's bodies were physiologically cold and wet. So gross. And <laughs> were prone to putrefaction of the humors. 
as opposed to the male body, which was dry and warm, mm. whatever that <laughs> means. So because of that, uh, he believed that the uterus was prone to illness, especially if it was deprived of sex with a man, <laughs> um, which uh, <laughs> which caused a widening of the woman's canals, um, promoting a cleansing of the body. Sex with a man, that is, caused mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Um, so he believed that, again, especially with virgins, widows, or single or sterile women, that uh, this uh, quote-unquote bad uterus uh, produced toxic fumes and began to wander around the body. Wandering. Wandering. <laughs> so uh, what should happen is that uh, widows and unmarried women should get married and live a, quote, satisfactory sexual life within the bounds of marriage, and that would fix all of the Oh, uh, yes, and if, if there is nothing that will fix my anxiety more than <laughs> getting married and being married to a man in this era... Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> um, so, again, in this era, the cure was um, sexual activity within the bounds of marriage and um, also perfume and dung. Still doing, still <laughs> still do, doing, still doing the tug-of-war The, the tug-of-war thing. <laughs> um, so, uh, moving forward a little bit to around 100 CE, um, there was a person named um, Serranus, Serranus, um, and um, this person is considered the founder of gynecology. Yes. Um, and... Uh, believed this person believed that hysteria was from the toils of procreation, so caused from giving birth. And um, so at this point, uh, big shift, the cure was uh, total abstinence and perpetual virginity. So again, you'll <laughs> see this trend opposite. here throughout history that it seems to be that either the cure is um, sex of some kind or abstinence. <laughs> we kind of go back and forth on this throughout history. And there, is, there are religious undertones to a lot of Oh yeah, of very this. much yeah. linked with religion throughout history, mm -hmm. how this shows up. So uh, we're moving away from the perfume and dung finally, but um, there, uh, there was some movement towards doing things like taking hot baths and getting massages and exercise, but the also baths, total abstinence along with that. Which, if we had to choose which era we were going to have anxiety in, like massages and hot baths and not being married to a man might be it, <laughs> right? And then yeah, at no least... Dung. No dung. I was going to no say, dung. the hot baths make up for the dung, the UTIs <laughs> that women would probably right. get. I know. Did we ever think that the UTI, or that the, sorry, the dung was causing the anxiety perhaps yeah. i mean that, would, that stresses me out. yeah, yeah I just thinking about it yeah. so anyway jumping forward a little bit um so that was ancient times uh, moving on to the middle ages so um after the fall of the roman empire um a lot of the medical texts um if you, we can call them <laughs> texts, yeah. but, you know <laughs> we'll call them medical texts um but there were also a lot of legit medical texts as well mm -hmm. uh were preserved by muslim scholars um, you know, there was a lot of um, kind of an academic um, movement in the Middle East uh, mm -hmm. when there wasn't in Europe at yeah. that time. And um, so uh, in later years, as the Middle Ages progressed, those uh, texts that were had been translated into Middle Eastern languages were retranslated back into Latin and passed on to the Christian clergy in Europe. And um, a lot of the ideas around hysteria were rediscovered by this uh, Christian clergy that had been talked about in ancient Rome and ancient Greece. So a lot of the ideas came back that, um, you know, had kind of disappeared for a little bit of time in between. 
Uh, yeah, so uh, women at this time were not considered patients, but uh, the cause of the disease. Um, All it, women's fault. Uh, yeah, of course, <laughs> of naturally. Course. haven't made it past that yet. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, and if a physician cannot identif- uh, identify the cause of the disease, it means that they were procured by the devil. Because uh, you're mentally unwell, the devil can get um, inside of you. So that was kind of like the general idea of where anxiety was kind of coming from. Um, Before, it was just uh, perfume and dung. But now we're starting to get into the religious view, Mm -hmm. um, where the disease came from and how to cure. Uh, So, of course, this is where we get into witch hunts. Witchcraft. Witch hunts. hunts. (laughs) Here it is. Surprise. Yeah. Again, with this... uh, discussion around hysteria uh very much cannot be separated from witches and how women were perceived as witches if they deviated from the norm at all (laughs) really at all (laughs) yeah it comes back to absolute and total control of women of course so Mm -hmm. if you do anything outside of what you are expected to do something is wrong Mm -hmm. and uh the like clear answer is witch yeah (laughs) she's a witch (laughs) and again you see this link with religion for sure where you know anything that would be outside of what the church expects of you to do Mm -hmm. you're a witch get married have kids Mm -hmm. and so think about all the things that were coming up at the time like men being abusive women not being able to have children when they're expected to or being married off to men that they don't want to be married to. Um, There are so many reasons for women to be experiencing PTSD and anxiety and all these other kinds of things. But without um, wanting to uh, recognize that, the men of the time not wanting to acknowledge that, the clear, yeah, we have to look to something else. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> that so makes some, it the women's fault. Some yeah. cures at the time that they had. So um, the the term that they used at the time was that uh, women were being frantic, um, and they allegedly tried to help them by startling them back into their wits by pushing them into holy water unexpectedly. <laughs> Yes, and so I can also imagine if I'm not having a good day, <laughs> being shoved into a fountain is probably not going to be what I need. Um, and um, again, with uh, the kind of witch hunts of the era, um, they would do this thing where they would tie a large stone to the woman and push her into a river. And the theory was that if she uh, didn't drown, then she was a witch and would then be executed in some other way. And if she drowned, then they could be sure that she was human. But, but of course, then it was she drowned too late at that point. So, um, yeah, so not not. A but great I mean, they were option. skeptical and didn't really like her in the first place. So it's probably fine that she drowned. Right. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So, again, it solves all of our problems. It's kind of a lose-lose situation for everyone involved. Yes. So. Uh, moving forward a little bit to the Renaissance. Um, so again, we're kind of looking 1400 to 1800 um, after the Middle Ages. Um, so there was still kind of this hanging on of the ancient Greek way of thinking about hysteria um, that was transitioning into a more theological view. Um, so um, one thing that they had been doing um, in uh, the Middle Ages, uh, you know, is they would masturbate women against their will um because they thought that that was going to cure them you know and like i said earlier it kind of went back and forth between sex being the cure or abstinence being the cure so there were times where you know in ancient times as well that we found where they believed that you know sexually stimulating the woman would help fix her womb whatever you know was quote unquote going on Mm -hmm. 
And um, so, um, so, you know, they were moving away from that because they were getting into this more kind of theological view of things. Um, and with that religious view, they believed that demons were causing the hysteria. And, um, and at this point, even though uh, there were still a lot of views that were, um, you know, very much based out of religion and um, that sort of thing, this was the beginning of where uh, scientists were first trying to look at this as a mental illness as opposed to witchcraft. Yeah. So even though, um, you know, from a modern perspective, it might not seem like science <laughs> the way that they were looking at it, <laughs> you know, this was the very, very beginning of where you start to see some sort of attempt to look at it from a scientific perspective. Um, it doesn't mean that the witchcraft um, or the witch trials went away completely. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the Salem witch trials were in 1692, so that's quite a ways into uh, this Renaissance era. Through. Yeah. Um, and we actually found the last witch uh, that was ever sentenced to death in history was in 1782, so that's after the founding of the United States. Um, and in the grand scheme of things, not all that not long that ago. Not that long ago, yeah. <laughs> um, so, of course, you know, even though there was this kind of move towards a more scientific view of things, women were absolutely still seen as inferior in this era. Mm -hmm. um, however, so in the 1600s, there was this uh, guy named Thomas Willis, who was the first to link um, what, again, they were still calling hysteria, uh, to the brain and the nervous system as opposed to the uterus. So uh, some progress. On the right track. <laughs> on the right track On here. the right track. <laughs> um, so again, you'll see that there is this move away from the uterus being the cause for hysteria. But it still, it takes decades, if not even longer than that, mm -hmm. to really fully move away from what even at the time we found a quote of... Um, at the time, they were still calling it the theory of uterine fury. Uterine fury. <laughs> uterine fury. Which, which, I mean, we've come a long ways now. We now know that that is actually something today in modern <laughs> uh, medical science. Um, I certainly feel that I experience that at least once a month. <laughs> uterine um, well, fury. And so this uterine fury, they defined at the time as a lack of sexual fulfillment that would drive young widows mad. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Oh, yes. So, yeah, in the Victorian era, so we're looking at like 1837 to 1901, roughly, um, women carried smelling salts in their bags um, that they were encouraged to smell when their emotions, uh, when they became aroused, um, because the pungent odor would help the uterus return to its rightful spot. So, again, the uterus is moving. Yes, <laughs> yeah. And so I think because of the long history of the uterus being like the primary cause of hysteria it, it took us a really long time to move away from that so even even though we're like starting to think of it as being in the brain and studying it starting to study it that way in this era the a lot of the like common cures at the time are still going to be focused on the right uterus. so yeah even though thomas willis like kind of addressed like oh it's definitely probably a brain thing and not a uterus thing we're was, back to uterus was not the popular yeah. view just yet yeah and i think like with a lot of things history isn't a straight line of progress there's a lot no, of back and back forth and a forth lot of pendulum swings pendulum, too yeah, yeah. Um, one really extreme pushes us back to abstinence again and back mm -hmm. and forth back and forth yeah yeah, and it was um, believed before Freud um, that hysteria was a lack of conception in motherhood, um, which, I mean, I, we kind of already covered a little bit, just you know, either sex or abstinence. And is, so we're, kind, we're moving back to <laughs> this again. Yep. And, yeah, again, this trend of if you're not the perfect 
woman who has children and only has sex with her husband and gets married and does all the church stuff and does everything perfectly then you're crazy and we're gonna throw you in a river yes pretty much (laughs) and so let's go uh let's dive into the uh most exciting bit of history that we discovered (laughs) in our journey this was a whole rabbit hole one day oh boy was it yeah so i'm just gonna call this segment we can't make this up yeah um but basically we're gonna talk about vibrators um, yes. So uh, right before vibrators, uh, they had um, uh, they were using hydrotherapy um, involved uh, pelvic douching. So yes. basically, um, it ori- originated in France in the mid 1800s, um, but they were uh, using hydrotherapy in spas and bathhouses. Um, but basically, the treatment involved. Um, uh, aiming powerful stream of water at women's thighs to like essentially clean the woman um and so that was kind of uh a kind of a first attempt i suppose at vibrators i don't know that they fully knew like how this was working or if it was always working i don't know it wasn't working every time maybe but yeah it was kind of an initial attempt at (laughs) yeah and i'm yeah i'm not sure if it was like stemming from like wanting to clean the woman or like move the organs or if it was yeah more like of a sexual like yeah right history um yeah is not super clear on that one (laughs) yeah but then so the first vibrator was made in 1869 um it was the fifth electric device ever created um it was invented before the vacuum yeah, so. um, but after the sewing machine order of importance <laughs> <laughs> really matters here um, the first one was called the manipulator which the sounded, manipulator um, it was so it was a coal powered um, a coal powered device it was uh, like massive so it was probably I, I highly recommend um, if you're comfortable with this looking this up on the internet it's hilarious the Im- the choose images. your words carefully of course yeah, yeah. choose your words carefully but um, yes the very first um, coal powered vibrator it's like an entire like uh, medieval it's torture like a, device it's a huge table it's a table yeah it's a table with... that the woman would sit on and there's like a coal furnace underneath the table I... <laughs> warm to your pleasure <laughs> <laughs> no but yeah absolutely ridiculous so coal powered mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty pretty ridiculous that's uh back, back when yeah back when you want <laughs> you're thinking the same thing that i am <laughs> that's back when you want coal in your christmas stocking <laughs> excellent yes oh that's so funny um but yeah the first battery powered one comes in about 1880 um and it only weighed 40 pounds o- only <laughs> so we're definitely reducing in size thank goodness um but yeah stopped using uh vibrators in the 1920s when the first um pornographic or steg films came out as they were no longer seen as some medical devices and they became so- uh, socially unacceptable yeah so just or unacceptable rather yeah, yeah. so they used as medical devices between what well, so kind of like the mid 1800s, mid-1800s to, to the 1920s 1920s, and then yeah. they fall back out of favor again it's no longer medical and it's seen as something sinful mm-hmm. we stop using them and yeah yeah and you Religion. can see that back and forth again that pendulum swing where you know in that late 1800s era it was like sexual stimulation that was seen as the cure until when pornography came out suddenly it was this big shift the other way of that's unacceptable we're not doing this anymore inappropriate (laughs) um so uh transitioning into the modern era uh with uh bringing it back to freud this is where freud shows up um 
So we're looking around right after World War II through present day here. Um, so uh, Freud believed um, kind of the uh, opposite here. Um, so this is our paradigm shift where um, he believed that it was a lack of the evolution of the libido, uh, meaning a lack of sex drive, and that uh, the failure of conception wasn't the result of hysteria, um, or sorry, is the result of hysteria, not the cause. So, um, so he believed, again, that women not having children wasn't um, you know, because they had hysteria, but that if they already had hysteria, they wouldn't have children because of their sex drive. Right. Um, he, like we said before, was the first to talk about male hysteria, um, which he included himself in that. Um, so, um, and here's an interesting shift here. So we're starting to finally move away from the term hysteria um, into our modern term anxiety. So um, we found, um, so this was in England and Wales uh, between 1949 and 1978, the number of people admitted to psychiatric hospitals for hysteria dropped by two thirds. Um, and that wasn't because there were less people experiencing anxiety, but instead right. they were using the term anxiety instead. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, kind of that after war period where um, the term hysteria was falling out of use. <clears throat> Um, this is also kind of the beginning of, um, so, uh, in the world wars, particularly world war two, uh, the soldiers were viewed as having hysteria and or anxiety, um, for the first time. So, um, there were some kind of big shifts that came along with, um, the soldiers from that era. And this is, this is kind of like the earliest stages of where we see that, um, PTSD is a subset of anxiety. This mm -hmm. is kind of the first that we have history kind of coming back to where the roots of that are is with the soldiers from world war two. Yeah, so um, so the uh, you had mentioned this earlier, M. So there's the mm -hmm. DSM, which is the Diagnostic and <clears throat> Statistical Manual. Is that right? I think so. So it's you know it's the big diagnosing book. Book, yeah, <laughs> that has all the diagnoses that exist in it. And um, hysterical neuroses had been in there, and um, that was removed in only 1980 1980 <laughs> um and that's where we start to see the term anxiety disorder um as an official diagnosis in the D dsm um so um the hysterical symptoms though were actually not fully removed from the dsm even at that time so uh they were considered manifestations of uh dissociative disorders so and again, they were called hysterical symptoms. So even after 1980, there were still like things related to hysteria, remnants of, remnants of, of this, that yeah. in there. Yeah. And so I think it's just like, it's good to say it out loud one more time. Like the term anxiety, like in this huge history, I mean, how many, where did we begin historically how far did 1500 we go? bc yeah maybe, and so from then all the way up until 1980 it's not until then do we start really recognizing it as anxiety mm -hmm. and this is only in the grand scheme of things 50 years ago mm -hmm. from right now mm -hmm. <laughs> so we we don't actually know a whole lot about this For 40 years ago. 40 years ago yeah oh see, i'm not <laughs> math. the math person in the group here <laughs> thank you <laughs> so it's even more time for you guys um okay <laughs> so that kind of that kind of brings us to like modern era of um where we're at with everything today 
Um, there is a whole lot we can look at um, as far as anxiety and kind of what's been going on in the last 40 years, mm-hmm. not 50. There's been some really positive changes. A lot of positive changes since years. then, yes. And yeah. it's it's uh, it's definitely one of those graphs where it like it hits like an upswing at some point. Like we're like progressing much more quickly now. <laughs> Thank goodness. Um, and so I think <clears throat> at some point we'll probably talk a little bit more about modern anxiety in a different mm-hmm. episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but to round out uh, the current episode I think we should do a quick peek at um, some of the cures and treatments uh, uh, modern cures I guess I'll say starting at about the 1930s just to give an idea of how long we spend on some of these really terrible (laughs) ideas and cures so in the 1930s and 40s um, we're seeing lobotomies um, which is where you're like opening up the um the skull and just poking mm-hmm. around inside the brain like there's mm-hmm. really not a lot of like fancy medicalness to that <laughs> they really were they like, would go up the nose sometimes, sometimes. yeah up the yeah. nose um and am i right that's where they would um sometimes sever the two hemispheres of the brain they have done that comes a little bit later with lobotomies when they like mm-hmm. the early lobotomies were very basic like drilling a hole and like really sticking a tool that looks kind of like a screwdriver in there and just worrying it around and hope in the frontal lobe too which is where you've got like your like like creative thinking and like reasoning and like what makes us what makes us more human than like animals and so Mm -hmm. in in a lot of cases it would remove that aspect from people which might calm them down but like at what cost Mm -hmm. there are some really great documentaries about lobotomies out there of people who've actually i mean people like survived them they lived through them and are able like to still think and use their brain but just in a different way. And there, there are a couple um, documentaries where people talk about who they were as people before and after the lobotomy. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. But they were. So lobotomies were used for many different things, um, but were used um, for, um, for hysteria, I suppose I might say, <laughs> at the time. Um, they were also doing the hydrotherapy that Mattia talked about um, and shock therapy in the 1930s and 40s. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we're, we're really like actually using electric shock to like... Mm-hmm put voltage into the body <laughs> which i would might add that um is still happening today it is and there's there are some interesting things um to read about that because mm-hmm. um, it's still being used incorrectly in some ways yeah. today and um actually being used um in some positive ways there mm-hmm. are certain things not anxiety necessarily mm-hmm. but other disorders where shock therapy actually seems to be beneficial um mm-hmm. yes can I? Okay, so um, when I had my seizures back when I was a teenager, um, there was actually some speculation between my mom and I. I had depression, but every time I would have my seizures, my I wouldn't have depression for like about a week afterward. And we we kind of suspected that the seizure would almost write my chemical imbalance in my brain hmm. um, because it was like an electric shock in my brain. Essentially, seizures are your mm-hmm. your brain kind of in overdrive (laughs) so and i i don't know specifically about that um if that is if there's truth to that or not but i do i think that makes a lot of sense to me it's just everything i've read about other disorders and how they're using electroshock do you think there's Mm -hmm. some positive benefits i think at this time they were shocking people um to the point of uh where they might have been like blacking out (laughs) And it wasn't regulated. And against their will. And it was against their will. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of other bad things going on. <laughs> so, yeah. 
So uh, <laughs> 1940s is where we start to get into psychotherapy. Um, it takes favor over um, some of these other medical things. So we're, we're kind of starting to look into um, medicine and, and more of like how the brain works. Um, and uh, we also uh, like talk therapy. The early, earliest of talk therapy kind of emerges here where you'd actually sit down and talk with a psychiatrist um, about how you were feeling, which is a whole... What a concept. What a concept. <laughs> actually asking people their thoughts and opinions and feelings about things. And so 1950s um, is when we begin fear exposure therapy, um, which um, is kind of uh, that subset of, uh, of anxiety phobias. So it's um, early stages of like um, exposure therapy where like you're being exposed to the thing that you're fearful of. Um, lobotomies are still continuing throughout the 1950s um, and uh, electroshock and um, artificial fever therapy kind of become uh, the most popular treatments at this time and so artificial fever therapy they'd actually find a way to um, like to increase your body temperature up to 105 I uh, know I've had my temperature um, got up to 105 one time for something completely unrelated I had like a, a viral infection or something and like <clears throat> I was I don't remember any of it. Like, I was out of it. <laughs> yeah. Like That's, yeah, yeah, borderline, like, you might unsafe. die. Yeah. It's unsafe. Yeah. Brain damage so, level almost. Mm -hmm. So that yeah. takes favor. <laughs> <laughs> that's taking favor at the time. Um, so 1960s is when we finally see the lobotomies kind of start to fall out of favor, and we get the introduction of antidepressants. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is kind of a huge shift, um, not mm -hmm. even just for anxiety, but, like, many things in the world when we start introducing mm -hmm. medication that's a whole yeah whole chain of events rolls off like from there the 60s is with a lot of medical things where it for the first time it starts to look anything like modern medicine yes yeah <laughs> yeah um yeah and so 1970s we get um cbt therapy which is cognitive behavioral therapy um, we're combining cognitive, like, like brain and thinking and behavioral, my actions and like what I am doing and putting those two things together, um, in how the therapist is working with us. And so, um, they're searching for something to replace opium at the time and guess what it becomes? <laughs> Valium, <laughs> even better. Uh, that becomes approved by the FDA in 1963, becoming the most prescribed, uh, drug in the united states between 69 and 82 um and i just think this is kind of like a fun little tidbit but the rolling stones actually have a song called mother's little helper which is about all of that at the time that song came out in 1966 but i mean it was like it was like taken over like mm -hmm. the nation <laughs> Um, we get um, into the 1980s. This is remember where the word or the term anxiety disorder finally pops up. It becomes official in the diagnostic manual. Um, we're still using antidepressants at this time, but it's not until kind of the late 80s, um, 87, I think, where um, SSRIs are approved. Um, and these are the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Which you've probably seen an ad for on TV at oh some point. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> if you live in the if, United if, States, I, I should yeah, say. If, yeah, if you, yeah, yeah. in America, there's a lot of medical ads, but nowhere else, really. Yeah, I, yeah maybe one other country. It's like, I think it it's is illegal. New Zealand is the only other one, actually. Mm -hmm. New Zealand mm -hmm. doesn't. Or Australia, maybe. Yeah. Well, it, I, maybe it's nowhere then. 
Yeah, yeah because I, when I lived in New Zealand, I had brought someone from New Zealand mm-hmm. to America. And mm. the, the first thing they culturally uh, commented on was, oh, my gosh, there's so many medi- medication ads. Hmm. I was like, yeah, everywhere, like television, even... giant billboards. Like oh, it, yeah. it is illegal everywhere else. Yeah. I don't know if mm-hmm. everyone in the United States would know this necessarily. Well, but I also didn't know that was only made legal here in the 80s, I think. So mm-hmm. people who are older remember a time before that was a thing here. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a dangerous thing, in my opinion. <laughs> but for SSRIs, I always oh, think yes, of that yeah. commercial with the little, um, it's like the two little things with the little like circles floating between them. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like a little animated thing. And I think it's supposed to be the serotonin floating between the oh, I, yeah. things the in the brain. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so um, the actual process of how SSRIs work is a little bit complicated. Um, I did learn about it in school. I don't know that I could put it into words right now. <laughs> um, but to put it very plainly, um, your brain is not producing something that it needs. And the, um, the SSRIs can go in there and... Um, mimic it and so it helps like if if you don't have enough um like serotonin to make you feel happy we can mimic that and something can go in there and give you like the happy things in the brain (laughs) (laughs) um let's see so let's go we get to the 1990s uh we don't start figuring out the connection of dopamine and serotonin until the 90s um, and that that is actually why antidepressants are working. So we basically have about like 10, 15 years or so where we're kind of just like winging it. Like we see that it's working, but they did not medically understand why, which I think is an important thing to point out with medication because it's still happening currently. There's so much that people don't know about medications. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I, I did not realize that until I took some like pharmacology classes. Mm-hmm. Um, the amount that like professionals do not know about medicine and the rate that they are um, prescribing them to, to mm-hmm. me is a little bit terrifying. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people assume that, you know, I mean, you look at your doctor's title and they have like eight letters after the end of their name and you assume like they know and what this medicine is going to do to me. And they're a trusted individual. They're yeah. a professional, like in a, and they've got like a title and a uniform and mm-hmm. you'd think that they know what they're doing. And I think, I, I don't think. Not that they don't. Yeah. But, and I think, you know. yeah, medical professionals are doing what makes the most sense currently in modern medicine but if you if we take a look at everything we just talked about in history there were medical professionals throughout that entire timeline that were prescribing what was considered best at the time Mm -hmm. and i think just because we're living in this time right now where it's better than it ever has been doesn't mean that what we're doing right now is actually the best it could be it just got room to grow absolutely and it just got it got me to think about it a little bit differently and so i think what i will add is that um there are medications out there that are extremely important and i'm not Mm anti-medication um i think there are medicines that like work wonderfully and people Mm -hmm. would not be able to function without them but there Mm -hmm. are also medications that are not that for other people and so it's it has to be like a personal journey for each Mm -hmm. person with medicine yeah Yeah. absolutely Oh, yeah. And so uh, as far as yeah, where we're at today, so, uh, things, I mean, we are learning and growing um, in the medical field, of course, since like the 90s. Um, it's, we've progressed since then. <laughs> um, but uh, the, kind, the main um, thing that we're still doing is the SSRIs today. And so that's kind of become a staple currently. Mm-hmm. And that gets us and through our talk therapy as well. 
Oh, yes, yeah. yeah. Oh, and uh, uh, the growth of therapy in general. I mean, not just for anxiety, but mm-hmm. very recently. Um, yeah, I just in the last couple of years, I think I would say. Over the course of the pandemic, I think that there's been a huge shift in people's um, willingness to talk about anxiety and depression publicly and on social media. And, and their and their shift. views of therapy and going to therapy. Mm-hmm. I know so many people now that like I have like coworkers who go to therapy and like I go myself and like people are more willing to say that it's not like this forbidden thing that we don't talk about mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah I actually um during the pandemic I had posted um on my social media page right, just something right. like hey does anyone have recommendations for a therapist I'm having a really hard time finding one and it was really interesting because I didn't mean to do this social experiment but I did it, it just became <laughs> one yeah. yeah where I got responses from um people kind of over the age of 50 were not posting Either they were posting on the post itself and saying, oh, my gosh, hugs, kisses, like, hope you're okay." Like Um, they were worried about you and they were like, what's wrong with you? Right. What's wrong with. Yeah. And it was very like, yeah, kind of like unintentionally accusatory. Well, yes. And like that, those were not the recommendations you would ask. Right. (laughs) And and so people like, what's wrong? Do you need to talk? Like and then the the younger people kind of um, I would get uh, under the age of like 35. A bunch of people were giving me like really good recommendations like they would personally message me yes um and they would send links and like advice and and openly sharing like this is where I go and like this is what's Mm -hmm. worked for me and so it was more of like a therapy is something we all understand and do and relate to and here's what I know about it and here's what Mm -hmm. I think can help you and I do see there is that generally generational shift and I think if you look at the, just the history of like what was acceptable and when in the last like 80 to 100 years, I think that explains a lot of people's yeah. views about therapy <clears throat> and medications mm-hmm. and just anxiety in general and like what it is. And Well, because I mean, not too long ago, if you were to publicly say that you had anxiety, even if it wasn't called that yet you would have potentially been like forced to get a lobotomy or forced to do electroshock therapy. So it makes sense why people wouldn't have been as open about it. Right. But now there's definitely the resources to like not, you know, (laughs) be put in a tricky position. You can actually just (laughs) say like, hey, I'm going through this and you get these healthy resources like Mm -hmm. talk therapy or the SSRIs. I think Mm -hmm. and I think this is where it takes us a really long time to shift away from some of the bad things that come come up in history is you maybe haven't experienced like you don't grow up in the time of lobotomies but your grandparents did and so they we do not talk about our feelings and like how like emotions and keep all of that to ourselves and they teach their children this who then teach their children this and so it's it takes many many generations (laughs) to move away from something unless we talk about it right which therapy (laughs) and 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 just sharing like yeah being comfortable to share like this is what i'm doing and like being Mm. able to have those conversations with your friends too and And, yeah different perspectives right yeah Mm -hmm. all right so um thanks so much for listening we have been on a long journey today with anxiety and um (laughs) we will definitely talk more about this in future episodes And um, yeah, so thank you so much for listening and we will see you next time. Bye. Looking the Other Way is created and produced by your hosts, M, Aaron, and Mattia. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter where you can find behind the scenes content and other fun tidbits we find along the way. 
Looking the Other Way is part of a bigger conversation. So let us know what you like and don't like at lookingtheotherwaypodcast at gmail.com. We value your feedback and look forward to hearing from you.